Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mute Tech Teacher Talk. This podcast is a part of MutechTeacherNet.com, a website dedicated to advocating, supporting, and inspiring creativities in teachers and students through music technology. In this episode, I have a conversation with John Snyder. John is currently the president of Tweed Studios and Recording Academy in Athens, Georgia, and on the faculty at the University of Loyola in New Orleans, where he has been the chair of the Department of Music Industry Studies. John has produced hundreds of recordings and CD reissues and compilations as a music and video producer. Recordings he has produced have received 32 Grammy nominations and five Grammy awards. He was recognized in 2018 by Offbeat Magazine with a Lifetime Achievement and Music Education Award and was described by AllMusic.com as one of the most important jazz record producers of the last 30 years. As a music producer, John has produced records with Etta James, Dave Brubeck, Count Basie Orchestra, George Shearing, Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker, and Dizzy Gillespie, among others. He's also recorded Eric Clapton, Paul Simon, Buddy Guy, Santana, Bonnie Raitt, Winona Judd, Stevie Wonder, Greg Allman, and Isaac Hayes on various blues, R&B, and tribute records. John is also the president of the Artist House Foundation which was funded by Herb Alpert to help musicians and music entrepreneurs create sustainable careers. I hope that you enjoy this episode as we discuss music production, education, and the importance of understanding the legal protections and entrepreneurial potential in today's do-it-yourself and home studio music production world. In the introduction to this episode, I shared with the listeners a sampling of your many career accomplishments from your early years as a performer, to becoming a multi-Grammy award-winning music producer, a practicing attorney in the music industry, your work with Artist House Music to bring to being a distinguished university professor. You are certainly a modern-day musical renaissance man. Tell me what got you started down this extraordinary life in music. It was a dark and stormy night. Um, so... <laughs> I mean, I was a kid who played music. My old man woke me up every day to practice piano and cornet. And, uh, you know, it's not that I jumped to it and just, well, I can't wait to do that. It took some time to fall in love with it, but I didn't have a choice. Um, and, I mean, he was just that guy. You know, he's just going to, you're going to get up, you're going to work, you're going to do this. <laughs> so uh, I never thought there was an alternative. <laughs> So, you know, the more you do something, the better you get at it. And then that's its own self-rewards. You know, all of a sudden people are saying, well, you can play. And, and I thought, oh, yeah, well, I can play. So it's like, then you got to defend it. You know, got to keep practicing. So I was pretty good as a player. Uh, I wasn't a great musician, I would say. But, um, you know, I was a good trumpet player in, in high school and then got scholarships to go to music school. Um, and, it was just, you know, I didn't have a big plan. Um, I was kind of the, the the kid who was more organized maybe than my peers. Um, and just, I, mean, I kind of took care of the business usually, you know, of the band I was in. And I was in bands and, and, and except in, in high school, I was a 15-year-old playing with a bunch of college kids. And I was, I was whatever did, I did what they told me, you know. So, uh, but it taught me about how those things run, and I, could, I was on the road with these, this band, so I kind of, kind of figured it out. And um, in college, I was we had a band, and we took it. And I got lucky, and we went around the world um, playing in the summers uh, for the for the military. Um, it was it's a long story, but we we did that three summers, and that taught me something um, about managing people and managing money and managing. You know, just logistics, um, and then you know, in music school, I was just a kid who played, and um, I, and that was my life. I loved the practice room. Uh, I loved playing music. Um, you know, it was it was good, and I didn't know where I was headed with it. Uh, although it was music education, and took a course in criminology one summer just to get some credits out of the way, and the teacher kind of forced me into considering law. So I went and. You know, it was cool. The uh, first year was a drag, but uh, after that, I got used to it. And getting out, went to wrote all the New York firms and entered law. 
and one record producer, and um, he wrote me back. And so I went up to see him, long story longer, at CTI Creed Taylor, and I got really lucky. I mean, the dude hired me on the spot. I mean, I was, it was, I think I was because he was Southern, he went to Duke, he was a trumpet player. I mean, it was, and I was, you know, had this kind of unique skill set. So he hired me and paid me Wall Street money and made me take the bar and I passed the bar. And, you know, it was an education. I mean, it was, I was at the top of the world dealing with the top jazz musicians and number one Rockefeller Plaza. And we were roaring. And then, we, and then we weren't. And, uh, you know, two years later, it was crashing and burning for all kinds of reasons. And, um, and then I went on to A&M Records. So that was another two-year stint where, you know, I got to work with great musicians. It's hard to fail to kind of start at the top. I mean, if you get lucky and, and you also don't, are not arrogant about it, I didn't know what I was doing, so I just hired people who did and then watched them. And uh, so it was, you know, I, I was very fortunate in my associations. And, um, and, you know, just people really helped me out. And I tried to return that, you know. But that led me to start my own business. And, uh, and I became, after running some record companies, an independent music producer because I realized that's what really what I wanted to do. It took me until my 40s to figure that out. But when I did, it was like, okay, here we go. And so now we're just working in the studio with making, we're making records, not having to sell them, package them or whatever. And um, that was fun. And so when that fell out, that early 2000s, and business kind of declined because of file sharing or whatever, you know, I started looking at academia and because uh, I was actually trained as a music teacher. And uh, that led me to teach a few courses at University of Connecticut and then also at my alma mater. My name got thrown into the hat at Loyola because I was making a lot of records in Louisiana uh, and I was making blues records in the 90s. And, um, and anyway, they called me and so I ended up going there in 2004 and then became chair of their music industry studies department um, where I was, I still am there, but I'm not chair anymore. And I stepped down from that this past uh, spring. And um, so... You know, I, I, I kind of built these programs with the other faculty to educate young people who had this desire to, to have this love for music. So the idea was to find a way to help them monetize that passion so that they could actually live that life uh, productively and, and, um, and, and, you know, successfully and raise a family. And, um, you know, contribute to the society and to the to the art and to the culture and to the to the economic situation. So yeah, um, that to me is you know an important thing, and I've been very fortunate to be able to do some of that. What led you from your early career as a performing musician into the studio to becoming a producer? Was there anything in particular that attracted you to that aspect of the music industry? You know, it's all uh, one thing leads to the other. You don't know it until you're there or you're headed that direction. So, I mean, I, as you get to be a musician first for me and then listening to jazz, for some reason I fell in love with jazz when I was 10 years old or something, like really young. And, uh, and I don't know why, because uh, my parents... You know, we're not particular. My father was musical, uh, but like hymns, he just he had a little organ that he played hymns, but he could play. I mean, but he was a barber by profession. So, I mean, you know, it's just that I just for some reason attracted to that music and um, ended up buying some records uh, just by mistake, you know, through Capitol Record Club when I was a kid, just homesick and going through a catalog and getting free records. You know, I thought that was a deal. Turned out it wasn't quite free, but the records were good. I just, by mistake, ordered a George Shearing record, a Miles Davis record, Birth of the Cool, and uh, um, the Count Basie record. And I think it was the covers uh, of the, and the word jazz, something about that. And I grew up to produce George Shearing and to re-record re Birth of the Cool with Jerry Mulligan, and to, who wrote most of the music. And and also to record Count Basie's band. And I recorded Joe Williams. It was like, wow. 
So I didn't aim at that, but that is what happened. And so what I, what that, how you got there was you're a musician and you end up in law school for some reason, and then you keep playing music and you end up in a record company and, and you see you're around with the top jazz producers you ever lived and uh, Creed Taylor and, uh, you know, seeing how that worked, which was, whoa, dude. And there's uh, some stories there, but uh, he was something. And, um, and then you watch others. When I, when I got to a and was they thought I knew how to produce records because I'd worked with Creed Taylor for two years. And I didn't, so I, I just hired a guy who did, Ed Michelle, and he was great to me. He taught me how to do this. And I gradually got good at it. And uh, because, you know, I just, it's a really incredible experience to work in a recording studio with giantly talented, hugely talented individuals. And he's like, oh, what am I doing here? But at some point, you've, you, you're there because you're responsible for their being there. And now you got to deal with it. So step up and, you know, it's like when you, when you're called out, you just step up. I mean, I, I'm not, unlike anybody else. So it's like, I was lucky to be called out for that, you know, be good. And I tried, you know, I'm be modest. <laughs> so I'm okay. But, um, you know, it's like, I was fortunate. So it wasn't, wasn't the thing that I aimed at. It was something that came and they're still going. I don't produce records much anymore, but I'm doing other things. And it's like, it's not over. You got to keep moving. In your work as a music educator, teaching and preparing students for careers in the music industry, an area of primary importance for them is to understand copyright law. Can you give me a quick introduction to how copyright law affects the work of a music producer? In your work as a music educator, teaching and preparing students for careers in the music industry, an area of primary importance for them to understand is copyright law. Can you give me a quick introduction to how copyright law affects the work of a music producer? You betcha. Uh, the, um, well, you're, if you're teaching music tech, then you're, um, you're, you're, those kids are making recordings uh, using programs and sa samples. And those recordings themselves are, are subject to copyright, to federal copyright statutes. And the copyright statutes work in such a way that as soon as you finish, you make tangible a, 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 an original expression, it copyright attaches. And in that moment in time, you get five exclusive rights. Uh, it's the same for every um, type of creative work, the same five rights, except for sound recordings have a, a sixth right. But those rights are the right to copy, the right to distribute, the right to control the public performance of that recording, the right to control the public display of it, which is less pertinent than to, say, visual art, and the right to, to make deriv derivatives from it, like a sample from a sound recording. And then for the sixth right, you get the right to control the digital transmission, which is Spotify and Pandora and the rest. And um, so that, those are the rights of a, of a publisher. And so if you're a publisher of that sound recording, you're what we call a recording company. Now, these are little micro companies. They don't have the same money and same assets and same reach of, say, universal music, but they have the same rights. And the, the, the student can do nothing about that, which is what m most musicians do, whether um, they can actually consider it as a possibility to think about. Because in a sense, that's a very entrepreneurial condition where you have assets, potential, potentially very lucrative assets that you can monetize. You can monetize those rights and start your own business and sign other people's stuff to your company. So you could also aggregate those recordings. This is also a question of economic development, of course. You're a job creator, you're a small business. So we, I'm not saying all those students are gonna be that, but I'm saying they all have the potential of being that. So if you're teaching, it makes the, 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 the activity, the learning of creating those sound recordings more purposeful. So I think it's amazing. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with that. So even with my, my middle school students, I tell them, you know, anytime that you complete a composition assignment, 
they're using their imagination and creativity to create an original piece of music. And I explained to them that when they submit those assignments that I can, I can assess the recording, I can assign it a grade, but the composition recording itself belongs to them. But the reason for that is the operation of copyright. So it's not that you're a generous person, it's just that copyright has caused the author of that recording to have those rights. And also, you need to make the distinction between the composition and the recording because they are creating two things. If they're creating the composition, which is basically melody and lyrics. Now, if it's, a, if it's just an instrumental, then it's that that's particular thing. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a separate copyright from the sound recording. So the sound recording is the sound recording of a composition, and the composition is a separate copyright. It's one of the, one of the seven, eight categories of copyright protection. And you know that's the thing. Their their creativity is in the context of that. And so sound recordings and compositions are two of those. And I also think that you know it offers you opportunity as a teacher to connect that act to their studies and say uh, civics or whatever they call it these days. Because in, in Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, it gives you that those that power is delineated. The power to promote progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. And from those 27 words come copyright, patent, and trademark. And that's a huge part of this economy. And the government of the state has invested in that economy, economy quite significantly in the film business and others. So it's a thing. And uh, that's where it all comes from. And I think that that's amazing that their act is protected by the Constitution. Not many jobs are. I think the only two are president and vice president. So the creative person is the person whose rights are protected by the U.S. Constitution. This is part of something bigger. So that's the inspiration, I think. And also, it's, the, it's, it's about self-expression. It's about individuality. A lot of times in institutional situations, the, the individual is, is kind of has, is secondary to the, to the organization, but not in this case, because it's the individuality of every one of those kids that makes the difference. That's, what, that's who they are. So once someone creates a composition recording, are there particular steps or procedures that they must follow to establish these copyright protections? Yes, register your copyrights with the U.S. Library of Congress. Here's the thing, you know, just because you can, your, your phone lets you take a picture, which is a copyright, every time you click that, it's a copyright, doesn't mean it's worth anything. So in that case, you wouldn't necessarily register all those copyrights. The reason that you register your copyright is if somebody uses it without your authorization, you can't sue them unless they're registered. And there are other reasons too. If you don't register within three months of publication, you lose the rights, you lose certain rights. And one of them, one of those rights is to collect statutory damages, which is another subject. But the point is, it's a good idea to register if you intend for that, that thing to have value, if you think it has value, if you, if you want it to have value. So, you know, you register within three months and that's a form you fill out online and it costs money. Um, I, I don't know the current cost of a sound recording, but if you are registering a sound recording and you really wanted to be buttoned up, about, buttoned up about it, you would, um, you would register the song, the composition, and the sound recording. These are two different copyright types and uh, two different fees. But, you know, this is a business thing. So you, they also are having, with those rights, they are a business. So that means you should have an LLC. You know, that's, that's another subject, a limited liability company. Very, it's kind of easy to do. It does cost money, you know, beyond the scope of the average middle schooler, I would say. But still, it's there. You know, it's a possibility. And at some point, if you go further with this, it will be a necessity. So just beware, and that everything you create has value, and some more than others, because some, some things are better than others, but or they receive more attention than others, which is another subject. So 
you know, I just think that you're any, any school that gives kids the opportunity to create uh, their own work is not only a, an exercise in, in self-development and individual, individual expression, it's an economic consequence. It's the, it's the, the economy. It's the future, it's the present, it's the now, the 21st century at the economy. We're living in it. So let's go. You know, that information is so important to understand. For many years, the model for a performer or songwriter to find commercial success was to find a recording studio, a producer, and publisher that would agree to record and produce the record. Yet, there are so many examples of performers and composers who had great commercial success yet walked away with little to no money to show for it because they didn't understand how to protect and claim their own creative work. No, it's very common. They didn't realize what they were doing. Yeah, they didn't know they were transferring rights. And they also thought that, that uh, it was logical for them to transfer rights that, of something they created and let the person they were transferring to write the contract. So if I'm going to sell you my house, are you going to write the contract for the sale of my house or am I going to write it? And you'd think logically that you would write it because it's your house, but that's not the way it worked. And so, you know, people did get ripped off, but the point was they, there were people who didn't. And also it kind of catches up. Like the Stones got ripped off, the Beatles got ripped off. Everybody gets ripped off and then you don't or you die. And that's the problem because nine out of 10 of those things don't work. So it's kind of like now we don't have those filters. You don't. You are the record company. You are the music publisher. And if you can't handle that, and some people can't, then find yourself an aggregator, which opens up another door for those students. They don't have to be the creator of the sound recording. They can just be the aggregator of them, the curator of them. So they sign those, those people who make that stuff to their entity, their LLC, their publisher, and they become that. They run that business. So I've, I've always tried to appeal to not just a creative kid in the sense of the kid that can really make music or make art, uh, but also those who appreciate that and actually could aggregate and curate all those rights that the creator really doesn't want to monetize. So there's your creative economy. And so that means every kid can play. Everybody can play. So, you know, pick it. I know that you've been very involved in the creation of the new Tweed Studios and Recording Academy that is open in Athens, Georgia. The facility is a beautiful and contemporary space with state-of-the-art recording capabilities and teaching labs. And you've been particularly involved in shaping the curriculum and its focus on preparing students to not only be skilled in the recording arts, but also savvy entrepreneurs and business people. What can you tell me about Tweed's approach to preparing its students this way? It's the same as with your students in middle school. The idea is to be aware that what you're doing is creating these rights. Therefore, you really can't push that red button that says, go, let's make this record this music until you have just dealt with those problems. If you, if you don't have a splits agreement and a work by hire agreement and some sort of understanding of what's the rights that are being created in that space, you're either going to fail, which is, there's no really point in that, although it's, it's good to fail to succeed, but still you don't want to kind of aim at it. Or if you succeed, there's going to be some dispute among the people who are making that music. And it, it's entirely possible because if it's valuable, then okay, what part do I, what's my share? And so a lot of times it ends up that people divide up this, the copyright is, uh, in five different ways which uh, is interesting, except that it's stupid because you can't license it. Nobody's going to license that work with five different publishers. Too much trouble. Everybody can say no. So it's, it's no. But uh, so you should have the understanding of, of the business. It's not something that it's not something we're giving you. It's something you already have and you just don't know it. And so most schools don't even point it out. It's like, I'm not sure they're even aware of it which is kind of sad, but you know, that's why things don't work. There's gotta be a purpose to it. There's gotta be a consequence. This is not because I said it's true. It's because it's in the constitution. It's in federal copyright statute. So by definition, the act of creating a sound recording or 
other creative expressions, a podcast like this. This is a copyright. This is a sound recording. And also when it's typed out, it is a literary copyright. So it's a thing. And you can monetize these things. We do it all the time. So at Tweed, we think that part of the, we're going to interweave the business part, the legal business part, uh, the consequences of making sound recordings into the art of making sound recordings. I mean, one without the other, I mean, what? It's not going to work out. I mean, you are making sound recordings. There are rights, whether you like it or not, and they have to be dealt with before you actually create them, or you will be facing a problem, potentially. So, yes, we, um, that's my part of this. I mean, it's the special sauce. It's the, it's the validation of the experience, of the, of the skill sets that you would acquire. If you learn everything about sound, well, you're going to be employable. And there's a, not just a job in there, there's a career in there. And if you understand the business and legal rights and the kind of the cultural consequences of what you're doing, now you've got a life. You don't just have a job. And that's, that's forever. So I think it's important. My musical development started as a band kid in middle school and high school. I went the traditional route and studied music at a university and received a bachelor's and then a master's degree in music education. Since I started teaching music technology and then became very involved in developing curricula and teaching resources for music technology teachers in my local public schools, but also at the state level, I've tried to develop relationships with the universities in our state to implement coursework to prepare current and future music educators in this area of music. Um, I, I regret to, to say that I found this a little frustrating and I haven't found much success in this endeavor. How do you feel about the traditional or formal approach to music training at the university level as it relates to modern music production and performance? And what do you think the outlook is for these formal music institutions to consider integrating what has long been considered informal music making into their curriculum? Well, yeah, the uh, music schools are traditionally um, kind of a conservatory model, which is, of course, based on Western European music for the past four or five hundred years, all of which I deeply love. I don't think we can live without Bach and Mozart, honestly. But um, it is true that the organizations that um, are glorifying that music, which needs to be glorified, are declining. And, um, and I think it has something to do with, with um, not only just popular culture, but in the movement of time, but uh, the fact that music and arts education was kind of sifted out of the public school system some time ago. And, and maybe making somewhat of a comeback at this point, but um, it's also true that it's, there's a long learning curve uh, to playing music. And so you kind of have to commit to it for a number of years to make it really work. Whereas in some other things, that's not, that's not as true. Uh, it's a bit quicker uh, to, the, to the finish line or to the scoring. Um, what I'm trying to say is that um, uh, it's, in my experience, the, the universities are now adding other programs uh, to be consistent with, uh, with the fact that people want something different. Um, I, I'm, I'm all for the classical music training, but it is true that there's a multicultural society that we live in, and there are other musics uh, in the world that, um, that, that coexist. And so it's, it's an amazing world, really, uh, of music. So, um, you know, at Loyola, um, where I'm still on the faculty, um, just on leave, uh, working on projects having to do with informing musicians and music entrepreneurs of their rights and of the potential of careers in those areas. Um, but they are adding popular commercial music programs, even if it's just a songwriting course or a, music, a film scoring course um, for the music and music students. M music degrees are very heavy on credit hours. It's, it's difficult to work in other courses into that uh, curriculum. Whereas a liberal arts degree, for example, there's, there's a whole lot of credit hours available to the student, which means they can elect a number of different, whatever they want in terms of their interests. And um, so it's not so much true with, with music students and others who have very constant, very full majors, very lot of requirements. So in any event, um, 
they are adding these popular music programs and they're also adding music industry stuff to help the, the student make a living in what they're doing. Maybe not necessarily as performers, but it is true that the conservatory model is aimed at performers. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I think you're going to be a better lawyer if you're a good music student. But um, I also think that as far as career choices, there are others uh, that you could choose. So I added a urban production degree at Loyola. I say I, it was a group, a team of people, but the, uh, it was an idea that I'd had for some time. And just like adding popular music and filmmaking and others that have kind of creative uh, expression idea with, uh, with monetization of the rights that, that flow from that expression. So that's what's interesting to me. And um, and I think it would be sustainable. I think that it would increase the population of uh, students in, in the creative industries and creative expression areas. So yeah, I think it's changing, but um, it's a little slow and it, it, it will be pushed by the market and you are the market. So, um, you know, as you train those students in self-expression uh, to give them the tools of self-expression they 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 will put the pressure on the, on the what comes after that and what it comes after that will change accordingly so keep up the good work i've had the opportunity over the last several weeks and months to see this amazing studio and recording academy being built in athens but what has really been most impressive to me are the people that have come together to teach and share their experience with students you and Tweed founder Andrew Ratcliffe have had very successful careers in the music recording industry. The other faculty members that have been brought to Tweed have had equally successful careers in their area of specialty in the recording arts. In an industry that is often viewed as being highly competitive and pretty cutthroat, where does this spirit of sharing come from with Tweed Studios? That's Andrew. I mean, he is, uh, he's, he's a mensch. He's a, just a good guy really intends for he wants to give back i mean as corny as that sounds and as often as it's heard it's true and uh, he has he has the, the ability to figure out how to do that and he does that by by pe hiring people that are good i mean he's got he's got a, he's like a really good general manager of a baseball team or something he, he knows players and uh, he's kind of intuitive about it. I don't think he's got a checklist, but he, he's just trying to put together a team of people who are kind of like-minded and whose values are more or less aligned and in the sense of their intentions. You know, what is it that we're trying to produce here? And yeah, it's a business. And yeah, I think it'd be best if he was making a little bit of money, but right now it's, we're just starting out. And it's just that we're trying to build something that we're aiming at uh, with, with really outcomes that we expect to achieve and creating metrics for that. How do we know we did it? And also just how do you get, how do you get a job once you get out? So placement is important. And that, that's really a matter of who you know and how involved you are in the industry and the kind of the, the, the purposefulness of your actions. Because the business, you can't fool the business. You know, they want good people, but there are a lot of good people. So it's, it's a matter of how do you find the opportunity? Where is the opportunity? And so I think that we reach out to the business and trying to help make teams stronger and make the results better and make the music more professional in a sense or more, I don't know, more, more available, you know, more accessible, um, the better. And so... You know, yeah, it's a good people, and uh, so I'm not the only one. I mean, I was interviewing Buford Jones the other day. He's our kind of guru of live sound, and the stuff that guy has done goes, it's incredible. And the heart, the professionalism with which he's done it, and he's an older dude like me now, and so he's into that. You know, what I know, I got to share. I mean, this is not going to mean anything if I don't. And he knows everything about live sound. The stories, the, the, the learning is told through the stories. And the, so the narratives drive the, 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 the pedagogy in a sense. And so he's not just an old guy telling stories. He's an old guy telling stories of how to solve problems on the spot in a context, in a, in a frame 
of giant chaos and intensity. So yeah, all that comes to bear on the, on the kids and the students that and we take adult students to um, uh, that want to want to experience this. So yeah, and we're trying to make it personal and just forever. Like when I told my kids at Loyola, I mean, this is not this is not for three years or four years or two years or whatever. This is forever, and for me. And so I I hear from former students all the time. I mean, that's the most gratifying thing that can happen to a person. So um, yeah, that's I'm looking for more academic <laughs> children, and I think that um, the others are too. Yes, I really relate to that as a teacher. I know for me. One of the most gratifying experiences is to see former students going to have successful careers after they leave my classroom. And in most cases, that success doesn't come as a surprise to me as their teacher. You know, I believe one of the most important roles that we have as teachers is to show students what they can't see. And I'm not talking about concepts or skills that they don't know. What I mean is that teachers can often see a potential future that the students aren't even aware of. Sometimes all that a student can see is the mountain in front of them, but as teachers, we know what's on the other side of that mountain. And when we're able to show them the way to make it over that mountain, there's a huge payoff in that for me as a teacher when they reach that summit and realize, uh, you know, a career goal or career path that maybe when they were in the classroom, they didn't even realize they were capable of. I think that's the key right there. That's the key. It's like you're making them aware. That's my thing. It's like I didn't know you didn't know till I told you. Now I told you. Now you know. So it's like there it is. And uh, and and that if you do that with generosity and love in your heart, I mean they'll they'll come to the come to it. You know, not everybody, but you got to tell them. And so uh, school is usually not so much about that. I mean, it's about something else as well as that. And so I'm, I think you're lucky and those who teach music and arts and all that, uh, that's when there's the magic, you know, that's the, that's the great awareness. There's the self-awareness. And that's what we as educators are waking us kids to. And the fact that you get to do it at that age, that hard age, that transitional age, that age where everything is possible. You're in the trenches, bro. You, you got my respect. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, certainly with uh, middle school students, uh, every day can certainly be a new adventure. And uh, some days uh, I certainly feel more effective than others. I often tell my students that being a music producer is like coaching a football team. You know, the coach doesn't actually throw the ball or make any tackles, but he or she is responsible for taking this group of people, showing them how to be successful in their role on the team, and developing a plan for the group to work together and executing the game plan. Yet, I've never been a professional music producer. What can you tell me about your experience in the booth? What are the keys to successfully working with performers to get that perfect take on a recording? Well, there's a book. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I'm thinking as you're talking about that, it's, there's, uh, it depends, the production is, uh, is so interesting because it's, it's it's different for everybody who does it. Um, you know, in the old school way, um, which I'm definitely from, you know, producers were hired by record companies and often by artists as well. And they get to be a certain position to, uh, to kind of manage the, the, the thing soup to nuts. You know, it's like, here's the contract. Sometimes I would even negotiate the contracts with the artists, but that's a bit of a uh, you know, conflict. I, I don't really like that. And if I did, I didn't take any money for it. But um, uh, but you, the artist is signed, and the record company wants somebody to you know kind of uh, there's A and R admin people, there's all kind of bill stuff. He's got to somebody got to manage that project, and they often call it a producer because that's the person that can handle the business part and the music part. And the music part really is about songs and uh, repertoire and, and and musicians. So there's no back in those days no electronics to go along with this, but. So it's, it's picking musicians, signing, and also just dealing with the artists, which is, gets into a psychological thing as well as a professional thing, as well as a musical thing. So it's a, it's a relationship. And, um, and so you have to be, you can't, you can't be selfish and you gotta have a thick skin and, and you gotta really care uh, about 
other people, I think. Um, you can also do it and not care, but it's, I always like the other part. The, um, uh, and so then you're, you're managing, you're taking care of the logistics, you're making sure everybody gets to the place on time, you're picking the studio, you're picking the engineer. Um, and, you know, those things are often done by, by habit. I mean, you know, you have your favorite studios and you have your, probably your top engineer or whatever the person, the people that you work with, you know, that you fall into that you get to know or you get to like, and, um, and you, you have, you get things done and you have fun doing it. And, um, so you get your team together and, in those days, you know, you can hire studio players. I'm talking about 70s, 80s, 90s for me. And I guess the last records I produced were probably maybe 2010 or 11, somewhere in there. But, um, and it's 2019 now. So it's uh, spent the last many years, you know, just working with students. and did a lot of student productions, but as far as the professional world, um, that's about it. But a lot of media since then. But in, in any event, um, you know, you're taking care of the, the budgets, you're taking care of the, all that, and then you get everybody in that room. And, uh, and that's the part that I like, because this chaos, just absolute chaos. It's like you, everybody's got their gig, you're running around, checking everything's set up. And we're talking about expensive high-end deals, so that, I mean, expensive in the sense of maybe the low-end thirty to $40,000, high-end three hundred, four hundred k for me. I didn't really go higher than that, um, like some guys, but, um, you know, you can, you can do a lot with, with $300,000. Um, uh, and, uh, so, um, you know, you're, you're, you're getting everything up to the point where you push the red button and then you've got to push the red button and then suspend all that other stuff. All that, all that thinking has to kind of like stop and, uh, pretty much on a dime. And you close your eyes and you listen and, and um, you go from there. You're definitely taking care of your musicians. I mean, pay more than they ask, make sure that the TVs work. I mean, if you're on a residential studio or something, make sure everything is perfect. Everything you can control, everything, checklist perfect. And, uh, and you really treat people with respect. I mean, geez, it's so easy to respect, respect people. Uh, and especially creative people who you know you're gonna, they're going to do something that's totally awesome, amazing, and could live forever. See, that's the point. When you go in the recording studio, you have the potential for affecting people's lives in a positive way or provocative way, and if not, change the world. And I know that's a highfalutin thing to say, but we don't have to argue about the power of Beethoven or Bob Dylan or Dr. Dre or... You know, I mean, we the, the the power exists. It happens in front of us every day. So if we get the opportunity to have it and to, you know, get lucky enough to communicate our message, uh, the thing that drives us most to communicate with more people, that's a that's a fantastic opportunity. It's a great luxury, and in a world where most people are looking for food and shelter, it's almost unfathomable. So, you know, you got to respect it. And, um, and it's, it is about the record. And in my day, it was also about the money. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if it's changed much, but you know, it's like, you've got to take that 30 K or that hundred K and you've got to bring back triple four. You gotta, you gotta, it's gotta really work. And so you have to make a record. It was, it was, that was what it was about of taking that, synergistic effect of so much creative expression and causing it to have form and substance and meaning and purpose, you know? So it's like, geez, that's not easy. So you just kind of play it straight and hope for the best, but you know, you eliminate as much risk as you can by just taking care of people. But nowadays you've got Andrew Huang, you've got guys, Mr. Bill, you got, Mark Rivola, you got all these people who are not, they're, they're producers and composers and engineers all at the same time. So that's, production has changed. I mean, it's like, you're now all those things. And so it's hard to be the same, the audience and the artist at the same time. So the producer in my day was the first audience. You know, we get to hear things and say, oh, that was great, or that was, 
And so you got to, you know, we, when you, you got to feel the goosebumps. If you don't feel the goosebumps, then you got to keep trying. And then you got to verbalize why you got to feel, what is it? And the best way to do that is just listen, 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 and, and talk to those, talk to the musicians. I mean, don't just say something when you're, when that's, when the track is over, when the take is over, listen to what the musicians are saying. They can, they know what they just did. So in my day, it was about those people. It was about the psychology of, of managing those people. And, and now it's the psychology of managing a sound file. It ain't the same. So, you know, you can now take any sounds you want and create and organize them into a, even a facsimile of a, um, of a, of a live recording. I mean, that's interesting. And uh, that's what you're teaching your kids. And that's, that's another way of making music. It's not the only way, it's just another way. And you can do remarkable things with that. So let me shift gears a little bit and ask you a little different question. When I tell someone that I teach music technology, they will almost always nod their head for a few seconds and then ask, so what is that exactly? And I think that most often they assume that I'm teaching kids how to use a doll or how to operate a mixing board, or the difference between a condenser and a dynamic mic. But I try to explain to them that I'm not trying to teach them how to operate anything. What I'm really trying to teach them is how to create music. I view the technology as the instrument of creation in much the same way that an orchestra teacher views a violin or a cello as an instrument of music making. You're not teaching a how to play the clarinet class. It's a band class or orchestra or chorus class. Learning how to operate the, the instrument of the music making is implicit in the curriculum, but it's not the center of learning. All true. You, you are teaching them how to play trumpet. I mean, you are causing them to be, play trumpet better, but you're right. It's on the service of the music. So the tools are one thing. The result is another. Yeah. There's two things, the, the tools of creative expression that we have today, unbelievable. I mean, to use, bro, make something, make something, let's hear it. And it's, now it's not just a matter of manipulating a, a, a piece of pipe, it's a matter of manipulating sound files and bits and bytes. And so it's, it's a different vibe, but it's just as creative. I mean, you know, I, I, yeah. So you give them the tools, and that's like here, it's like, here's a shovel, here's a hammer. I mean, you, you'll figure it out. And now let's go make a, make something, let's build a house and have a garden. And um, so it's, it's, yeah, give them the tools. And that's what the, the, that's what the school system needs to do. It's the more creative tools, the better. And you do that by, I think, appealing to the student's interest. You can, you can teach anything to a student through the portal of their interest. The problem is that we're, we're homogenizing the interest. We're making it too general in a sense. I mean, uh, how, about, how about an English course in writing about the arts or, or a psychology course in creative mind or a science course, a physics course in the, sci in the science of sound? I mean, every, no kid's gonna love a physics course just because it's a scary word, but, um, but the science of sound? If you're a player or you want to work with uh, MIDI and make music in the box, yeah. I mean, yeah, what is that now? What, how, how does that work? I mean, how can I, what can I learn from that? And so you're, you want to stimulate learning by the kid on every level. Here's the deal. If you're going to make stuff, uh, make, a, make wealth out of your imagination through the operation of copyright, through the operation of self-expression, what you put in there is, is just as important as what comes out. It's like the determinative. So what are you putting in your head to, to express? And I have to say, I mean, I'm old school liberal arts. The more of that, the better. The more literature and of every type. I'm not just talking about Western Europe. So of every type of just reading and philosophy and thought and expression and art and music and history and the history of technology. That's another way to approach a kid. It's not just the history, global history or history of the Middle Ages or whatever. It's the history of technology. And that tells you, that connects you to that world and also to the people who live in it. So there, there are ways of, 
of, of stirring the creative imagination of students by awakening to the, them to the virtue and power of it. This, you got to prize them as individuals and appeal to that. And then I think you can, you can teach them anything. That's what I think. Of course, it's easier to sit here than to do it, but I did try to do it in co on the college level. And I did find that it worked. So I did get students on a physics of sound course. I mean, that one, I finally got that up with the physics. I think we had 45 kids in a physics course. That hadn't happened since 1956, man. So it's like, that's, that's how you get it done, is you appeal to the interest of the student. And the more interest, the better. And the interest of creativity and self-expression is the easiest one to go through. So, you know, I say cause those kids to be writers, cause those kids to be musicians, cause those kids to be photographers. I mean, they, uh, what they see matters. What, how they see it is, matters. And, uh, you know, so I think it also instills responsibility. I mean, it also instills empathy. I mean, if you want somebody to care about what you do, you got to care about them. And if you don't, they won't. So wake up, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's like, be nice and look in, and turn and look inside of those people. What did they need? Everybody's hurting or, or glorifying something. And so, what is it? How can I help you? And um, you know, I think if you had that attitude about people and you assume the best in people, which is what you would do naturally as an artist, an empathetic person, I think the better. The more music, the more peace. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, it's such a simple and beautiful concept you know we could solve a lot of problems probably if we could just take that attitude with us about a lot of things the last topic i want to ask you about in our conversation today has to do with today's music consumer i'm a child of the 80s i was first inspired to learn to play an instrument from hearing clarence clemens sax solo on bruce springsteen's song born to run you know, I can remember buying Michael Jackson's Thriller album and then lying on my bed and reading all the liner notes on the album cover that listed the producer, the recording engineers, and the musicians while I was listening to the album. And then in the age of the CD, you know, took these liner notes to a whole new level with literally having many books that accompanied many of those albums. But in today's world of Spotify, Pandora, iMusic, and other streaming music services, it seems like those credits and background information about the music are largely gone. And I hate that. But does that matter anymore, today's music consumer? And do you think it should? Well, you know, I was like you. I mean, I, I love albums and liner notes and credits. And I want to know everything. And in fact, that's what I did when I got a chance to make that stuff. I mean, I put eight page booklets and I stuff my records and <laughs> I did complete discographies and I would tell you which books you should read. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there was only one book about how to get in the record business. And so I'd always, if you want to do this yourself, here's the book you need to read, you know? So, I mean, I'm all about information and um, the more the better. And I do lament listening to Spotify and saying, no, I know who that drummer is, but I can't. Who is it? I mean, is that, it's not Elvin. I mean, who is that? And, uh, you know, so I, I do miss that information. And um, I'm, I think that, that people, that, that one of the kind of, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting development that music has become more fungible. You know, it's almost like it doesn't matter. It becomes something that you, it's wallpaper in many situations. And um, it's interesting that it's become that because what an interesting wallpaper, you know? It's like, wow, why not some other kind of wallpaper? And um, so it's, it's, uh, it's bad and good, but it's, I don't, it kind of makes it more fungible and maybe less meaningful. And there was something about the frame of, um, of the art that's always interesting. It's kind of, well, C.K. Chesterton said the frame was the essence of the art. And he said a lot of things <laughs> that were kind of silly, but he, he was on that was that strikes me as is um is true. It always worked for me in record production where the money and the time were the frames of the recording. So you had a certain amount of money, a certain amount of time, and that forced into the result. Uh, you know, if you have unlimited time and money, you say, when do you stop? 
So anyway, the credits, losing that, losing the tangibleness of it, um, that's something that's lamentable. I mean, certainly as somebody who owns 12,000 LPs, I can tell you I, I've, I've, I, I would <laughs> witch it, bro. But um, also the, the idea of streaming music and having, having it so accessible, um, it's a market thing, you know, as people grow up a certain with certain um, habits and, and those are form of habits of others sometimes, but I think it could change again. And I think there's a little bit of um, uh, interest, you know, resurgence in LPs, uh, um, and which is interesting in its own way. And they're making analog recordings out of digital <laughs> recordings. This is kind of odd, but you know, whatever. And, um, but you can, also get information on the websites. It's just a little bit different. I mean, how would you go about finding it? I think if Spotify were encouraged to buy some membership and as listeners to at least make it possible for that information to be accessible, like who was that playing and who produced that? You know, why does it matter? Because, you know, there, there could be a market for that. Why does it matter who's on that record? And that also is a function of when records were made by people and less by machines. Um, machines are not quite as interesting because they don't really have their their own backstory, their own drug abuse, and uh, so it's uh, it's it's just not the same. And I think the human connection also explains why live music is so resurgent. I mean, when when MP3s came in, my thought was that that's going to drive the live music world because that is such a crazy way to listen to music. <laughs> People won't be able to stand it for long. And uh, they'll glorify the fact they can have anything when they want it, but then they'll realize they don't really want anything when they want it. They want the experience of it. And uh, there's the meaning, there's the memory, there's the value. So I think, you know, live music, um, that, that's becoming more corporate, more controlled and more difficult to appreciate maybe, but it's still growing and everybody can hear it. So that's a good thing. And that's a personal thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it'd be better if we knew more about the people that made the music. But, you know, the thing about Buford, he's a live sound engineer, right? Live sound mixer. And he thinks of himself as part of the band, as part of the record. So they toured behind records in those days. The record came out and they're gonna be on a long tour. And the, and the record, the music on the stage is supposed to sound close to the music on the record. And uh, that's hard because the record is very controlled and you can push that rewind button and fix anything you want, but you cannot do that in a live concert. And to have that kind of role in the, in the music of the artist, I mean, was a real thing for him, a musical, creative, exhilarating experience on night after night. And so that's just something that's missing. You know, that's the human thing that kind of makes things valuable. So teamwork creates music, humans create teamwork, and their stories add up to another story. And then that story is your story. And that's what's so important about it. You know, you can take your pick, music by the, by the role or uh, music by the, uh, by the minute. Well, unfortunately, we have reached the end of our time today, but I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me. No worries. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You are such a wealth of information, and I, I really hope that we can continue this conversation in the very near future. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with John Snyder. If you're interested in learning more about John and his work, I would recommend visiting the Tweed Studios website, which is www.tweedrecording.com. I've also listed several other websites in the notes for this episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about it. In addition to the podcast and www.utechteachernet.com website, I also have a blog at www.utechteachernetblog.com. 
and the MUTEC TeacherNet channel on YouTube that you can subscribe to. And if that isn't enough, you can also stay in touch with us on Facebook at MUTEC TeacherNet and on Twitter at Twitter handle MUTEC TeachNet. Please like and share and always feel free to leave some comments and let us know how we are doing or what you would like to learn more about. Advocate. Support. Inspire. Create. The Music Technology Teacher Network.